Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. I wanted to begin today uh, with one of my current favorite paintings uh, that I've ever come across in my entire life, and it's not for the reasons that someone who has an art degree should enjoy a painting. Uh, this is called The Peaceable Kingdom by Edward Hicks, who, uh, as many of you know, was a Quaker pastor in 1820. Uh, and it was a painting that was a vision of uh, the passage that we read today from the prophet Isaiah, who we're going to be really focusing in on today. Now, there's a lot. There's a lot happening here, but I want to focus in on my favorite piece. Now, I know we're not talking about joy until next week, but, I mean, that gives you some joy, right? Now, there's a, I ran this by some people. There's a couple scenarios here. Uh, number one, uh, Edward Hicks has never actually seen a lion in, in his life, or for that matter, a baby. Number two, uh, this lion is prematurely balding, and he's very self-conscious, which I've actually seen in real life. Number three... Uh, this baby is pulling on his mane uh, in the kingdom of God, and he is not having it. There's a few different, there's a, so there's a few different possibilities of what's happening here. My favorite is, I don't think this cat is convinced of the kingdom of God. I think that's, I think, like, let's zoom back out. Let's go back to the first one. We've got, we've got the lion. We've got the lamb. We've got the leopard. We've got the goats. We've got babies. We've got pilgrims. Uh, He's in the middle of this thing. He's, I, he's like, I don't, I don't think this is going to work out. I, I don't think this is going to happen for me or for anybody. This is going to turn into a disaster. Um, I've, been, I've been preaching for like a decade, and I have recognized and I own that preaching about peace is probably the most defi- divisive thing that I can do, okay? When I talk about kingdom peace, not the peace of the world, but the peace of the kingdom. It tends to be the most divisive thing. And actually, people have left the church because they've preached on peace, which to me is kind of hilarious in a way. Uh, Because I think if we're honest, a lot of us, when we really hone in on what God means when God says peace, we feel like that lion. We feel like we're in the middle of this imaginative, brilliant, kind of apocalyptic, beautiful scene, and we've got this look in our eyes like, I don't think this is going to work out for anybody. Um, And so I want to, like, as we're going through this, that's going to be my challenge to you is to recognize what's your natural reaction to this message of peace that we're looking at in this Advent season um, and to recognize maybe that God is calling you into to embrace a deeper, higher, longer, wider vision of what he means when he says peace. Because if we can't capture that larger vision, we will always find ourselves more rooted in empire uh, and less so able to grasp uh, the reality of the kingdom. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into this today. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, uh, that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us. And even in this Advent season, this word coming or arrival, we recognize that as much as you are here, the way we tell the story is to help us to recognize you're always coming. You're always arriving. You're always on the advent of revealing yourself to us. So Lord, we come into this place with expectant hearts, open-handed 
and willing to be surprised and delighted by what it is that you say and do to each one of us. We don't come here to have our biases confirmed, but rather to have it all ruptured and shattered so that something more beautiful can grow in its place, this thing that we call the kingdom of God. So come, Lord Jesus, do what you desire to do in this place. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week we began Advent with hope. And we began it in the dark. In fact, that's why we have the, the Advent wreath, that we begin with a single flame. Uh, and even talking to some people, they said, well, when did we actually get to the hope bit? Because last week felt pretty heavy. And I did that on purpose. I wanted to leave you guys in the dark. We talked about this idea that the prophets, especially Jeremiah, is inviting us to sacred waiting. That sacred waiting is us kind of sitting in the darkness, recognizing our compulsive need for instant gratification to have our needs met or whatever it is that we're desiring and we're chasing after, especially in a busy season uh, like the holiday season that we're in currently. But when we slow down and we feel the heaviness of the darkness to say this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. And I keep getting all my surface needs met, but I'm not getting to those deeper things that might actually be found in King Jesus. When we allow ourselves to slow down, to feel the weight of our present condition, we begin to imagine that there can actually be a better way. There can be a more beautiful world. So sacred waiting enables us to have a vision of hope. And I think that brings us to this week, being able to fully imagine a kingdom of peace. And I think what we recognize from last, last week when we're looking at the promise that God gives through Jeremiah, it's that we all want justice and righteousness and salvation and healing. But we've also seen for thousands of years what happens in, with humanity when we try to make those things happen by our own merit. When we decide what we think justice is, when we decide what we think salvation is, and when we take matters into our own hands, it seems like we tend to make things worse. So Advent is an opportunity, I think, for us to recognize that mechanism in, in the human family and to pause and to say, well, what if all of the things that the deepest desires of the human heart, what if all of those are actually met in King Jesus? What if that's the way that God actually plans to make peace? So we're going to be looking today, we're moving from Jeremiah into the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to be looking at three different passages. We already read uh, from chapter 11. I'm going to look at 9. We're going to go back into 11. And then we're going to go into uh, chapter 2. And I want you to be listening for this language. What I recognize a lot with peace, peace does not mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of something. And in, in, uh, in Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. And it kind of means togetherness or unity. Um, the things that have been shattered by the brokenness of sin and death being brought back together. That's what we're talking about when we talk about peace. And one of the things that I've recognized over the years in kind of studying theology and poring over scriptures, a lot of these words that we use, they're just all kind of slightly different angles for the same thing. Like even last week we talked about with justice, that justice doesn't mean somebody getting punished according to the, the scale of their sins, um, that's what we mean when we say justice, but in God's world, it means restoration. It means someone being brought back into their proper place in the created order. Um, when we talk about righteousness, it's that same idea of being brought into the family of God, being found in harmony and balance. 
Um, and it feels like all of these words, peace and justice, salvation, you know, which is kind of one part rescue, one part healing, all of them kind of are dancing around the same thing, which we talk about as love. So this is from uh, Isaiah 9, uh, verses 1 through 7. And I want you to be listening with those ears of peace for the vision that Isaiah desires to give us of what God means when God says peace. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So even there at the end, we see the promises of Jeremiah, the promises that God makes to his people repeated in Isaiah. There will be justice, there will be righteousness, but it can only come when we recognize God's Messiah as the way in which he plans to do that. It's like one of these questions that I get asked all the time, like, which form of government is the most Christian form of government? And I think it's like the whole premise of the question is wrong. Like, every form of government is great if there weren't people involved. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, how many of you read Matilda when you were a kid, Roald Dahl? It's like the principal trunchbull. She's like, the ideal school is one that doesn't have any kids in it. Like, the ideal human society doesn't actually have any humans involved because we tend to mess things up. And this is what we recognize. This is the stubborn claim of, of us as Christians is to say that there is no king but King Jesus and none of it works, we can't find the justice that we desire, the righteousness that we desire, the peace that we desire, if we do not have allegiance to Jesus. And so what we're seeing here, um, this is before Jeremiah, okay? So we're talking probably 150 years before Jeremiah that Isaiah is doing his work in Judah, kind of in the 8th century B.C. And what is happening during the time of Isaiah is that Assyria, which was another one of these kind of you know, mega empires uh, comes in and sacks Israel and then later on sacks Judah, just takes them over, smashes them. Like if you've ever looked at um, Israel and Judah on a map, it's like the worst possible place to plan to have a country because you've got Babylon and Assyria up north and then you've got Egypt and all these guys hate each other and they're fighting and you're just like caught in the crosshairs. 
So during the time of the prophets, they're the ones that are constantly getting sacked and taken over and then taken out into exile and then coming back. And then it's, you know, the, the Mesopersians. And I know how y'all feel about Mesopersians. And then there's the Greeks and then there's the Romans. It's just like one empire smashing them after the other. And so this is, this is the kind of context into which Josiah is uh, preaching to these people, a people who it feels like they're in darkness. It feels like they're constantly being squeezed on every side um, by these empirical notions of power and structure and status quo. And so it's in that, just like Jeremiah, that Isaiah wants to give this radical vision that doesn't meet the people where they're at, but actually challenges them to overcome their present condition. And I think that that's the invitation for us today, that Advent gives us a vision of the radical peace possible when God brings us all together through his Messiah, Jesus. So like I said, peace, shalom, it means union. It means togetherness. It means wholeness. I love that idea of peace, peace being a vision of being made whole. And so when we begin to think of it in those terms, we say, oh, well, actually, there's, there's some sort of a peace that has to happen between creator and creation. So there's kind of a, uh, a spiritual peace in a way. There's a peace that has to happen uh, on our level of existence, maybe between creation and humanity. There's a peace that needs to happen within the human family. There's a peace that needs to happen within our immediate communities, our families. And as you continue to parse it down, there's a peace that ha- needs to happen within us. So when I'm talking about peace, I'm talking about it at all of those progressive layers. But I think this is one of the things that is most profound to me, is that peace is a vision of our original intent and creation. Peace stems from who we were created to be at the very beginning. And that's as individuals, and that's as a human family when it comes to our relationship to God. There's this wonderful quote um, that I was reminded of as I was preparing for this message from St. Augustine, who was a, um, an African bishop in the 400s. And he was talking about this idea, and it's very ironic because Augustine is the one that we normally attribute this idea of original sin, which, as we w- are wont to do in the, in the church, we take an idea and then we run to the extreme where, like, humans are just pieces of trash and they're totally irredeemable and God can't stand them. Jesus seems to tolerate them, and that's the kind of thing. That's not what he was originally saying. But I love that he, gave, he gives us this vision of, like, this was our original design. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I love that vision because I think what Augustine is telling us 1,600 years ago is, like, our most natural position is a position of peace as human beings because we were created in the image of God, and God is a God of peace. So our, like, our original intention, the most natural thing for a human being to be, is in peace with God, in peace with others, and in peace in, with self. The problem is that we don't believe that. And I think that's the problem when it comes to original sin, for example. We believe that peace is so unnatural to us, it's so far out of our design, that it's this foreign country and we'll never get there. But I think it's actually really radical to when, we, when we read the scriptures and we see how we were created, that God creates us in, in his image and says, this is very, very good. That's where we begin the story. So there's these two interrelated senses of peace 
in the biblical vision in the kingdom of God. First of all, that we create peace with God. This is what we call worship. This is why, for some of you that are continually late, this is why we start with songs. Because it's about establishing that sense of peace with God, that togetherness with God that comes through ascribing worth to who he is and recognizing that he has an authority over us to tell us who we really are, especially when we don't believe it. And then we establish peace within the human family. This is what we call justice. And this is about bringing back together um, the human family that has been torn apart by our sinful nature. When we try to rule the world, when we try to order the world, what do we do? We tend to oppress people. We tend to other groups of people in order to establish peace. But when God does it, and it can only come through worship, this is the relationship between worship and justice. If there is no worship, there's a skewed sense of justice. Okay, And so the peace that we're being called to in Christ is a recognition that it's both of these pieces that are interrelated. So we kind of come into that and we're like, okay, but, okay, how? Because we're very practical, right? Like you and I, we're practical people. We like to read books. We like to run programs. We're like, okay, so tell me, what's the plan? How do we make, how do we make peace happen? Like, let's, let's read the right book or whatever it is. And I think that maybe that's the problem. Like, we're so utilitarian when we think about peace that we can't pause and sit and really, like, hold on to this vision uh, that God is giving us. And so I think that's when we go into Isaiah 11, which we had read earlier, that's where we really begin to be challenged in these notions of just thinking about peace practically. So I just want to kind of circle back around um, to just like one portion of that chapter. This is in 11, uh, verses 6 to 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love this. I love this vision of peace because it doesn't make sense, okay? It's not reasonable. Like, Isaiah knows what he's doing. He doesn't have some sort of guy in the back corner that's going, um, excuse me, Isaiah, that is not how the creator order works. Like, he knows this. He knows, like, he's writing this down. He's had this vision of the kingdom. He's like, it's ridiculous. Like, Edward Hicks, he did his best to get it down Bless his little heart. Like, he needs to go to the zoo, maybe, and maybe hang out with some toddlers. But, like, he's trying to capture this, like, ridiculous vision. And this is our problem. This is why you and I are not peaceful people, because we're reasonable people. But we, 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 we don't create enough space for beauty. And so if we're going to understand peace in a kingdom sense, we have to say this is not reasonable It's beautiful. And I love especially that last line. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like, what does that even mean? You know, like, as the waters cover the sea, uh, the the sea is water. Like, what are we talking about? But Isaiah is grasping for these unreasonable, 
illogical images that kind of help us to transcend our normal assumptions about how the world is supposed to work. Because the peace of Christ is, at first glance, not practical or even rational. It must begin with prophetic imagination that shatters our need to be reasonable. So often when I get in conversations with people about Christian pacifism, the first scenario is always the scenario. And you, can know, the, you know the scenario. Well, somebody breaks into your house and they've got a gun and your wife and your kid, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to do? And I'm like, have you ever in your life experienced that, first of all? But I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a pastor up in Nashville about this. We were kind of sitting on his porch talking about it. This is like a decade ago. He said, I know what I would do is the right thing, but I'm not so convinced anymore that it's the Christian thing. And it was really powerful. And I knew what he meant. Because you and I, we, we think about right and wrong, and we measure out how we make decisions based on what's practical. Like we want to kind of mitigate the damage or the greatest good for the greatest number of people or whatever it is. We all have our measurements of what's right and wrong. But so often our measurement of right and wrong is more informed by trying to be practical and to survive in a broken world than it is a radical vision of the kingdom of Christ. And I think that that's why we continue to remain stuck in these cycles of violence, because we can't see an alternative. So even last week when I was talking about hope and Jeremiah, I said the problem is because we do not have a prophetic imagination, which means that we haven't been informed by these radical visions of the kingdom of God, even as Christians, where we see the, the, the empirical problems, the problems that are created by the empire, which is when mankind decides, sorry, humanity tries to just run the world. We see the problems that are created by the empire, but then the empire offers us its own solutions, and we go, oh, well, I guess I gotta just ratify that solution in the name of Jesus which is why we keep thinking like one party or the other is somehow more Christian than the other. Ha, 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 you know? Like, that's what we do. And so we get stuck in these cycles of violence because the, the problem of violence only seems to have violent solutions. Well, if we had more guns, if we had a larger military, do you know that our military, like our country spends more than the next 26 countries combined on military? Like, look at our budget. Look at how much we spend on our military. Look at how much we spend on education in this country. Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not bashing the military. I'm just saying, like, the way in which we spend money, like, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Somebody said that. I don't remember. Who was that? <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, probably. Like, <laughs> but our, our solutions... We call it just Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome would come in with the bigger stick. We're going to make peace by beating everybody else into submission. And that's, a, that's true on a national level, but it's true on a personal level. Like, I don't believe in peace because I'm a peaceful person. I believe in peace because I'm a violent person. Because I recognize in myself, I'm stuck in this uncreative cycle of violence where the violence that's enacted upon me by people's words and deeds, I just shoot back with the same thing. Like, I'll cut people down, I'll gossip, I'll give them the cold shoulder. Like, all of these kind of little maneuvers, or these little empirical maneuvers, where I haven't been submitted to God to be washed of my violent tendencies, to imagine better ways of enacting peace in my relationships. So we don't have a vision for peace when it comes to being individuals. We also don't have it when it comes to being 
a people group. And I think what's so amazing about Isaiah, Jeremiah, these other prophets, they're not terribly concerned with the mechanics of the kingdom. Like, they don't give us the vision to go, okay, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. So how's that going to happen, Jeremiah? He goes, I don't know. That's up to God. Like, it's not my job to tell you the 12-step program that we're going to run in order to become more peaceful people. Because that's just not how the kingdom of God works. That's well-meaning humanity trying to do things on our own merit. All the prophets are inviting us to do in this Advent season say, can you just entertain the vision for a second? Can you let go of needing to be reasonable, of being practical, of being utilitarian? And can you just allow yourself to believe that there's this radically more beautiful vision of what could happen when God is king? And that brings us to our final passage uh, from the prophet Isaiah. This is in chapter 2. So right towards the beginning. This is kind of the, one of the first prophetic pronouncements he gives of, uh, of the kingdom and the new reality of God that we attribute to coming through Jesus. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Is that vision not been enacted yet because God's not on the move or because we just don't believe him? Many of you be familiar with Shane Claiborne, um, who's been a, a writer, activist for, gosh, 20 years. He was kind of the, he's kind of like the hype Christian writer when I was in college and we were all like cool young communists. You remember those days? It was great. I think I still adore his work. He's, done the, he's written a book called Beating Guns, and it's about the gun epidemic in our country. But he, he and a friend are traveling around the country, and they literally, people, like, bring their guns and submit their guns, and they sit there, and his friend is a, an ironsmith, and they beat guns into plowshares just to show this, like, prophetic symbol of, like, this is what it means to be uh, in the kingdom. And I love that. I love this, like, this vision that Isaiah gives us, like, right in the beginning, like, we're go- like, if the nations will stream to God's holy mountain, to his holy city, there will be no more war. He will teach them his ways, which is the path of peace, and they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. And I know some of you, even right now, you, it's like you, you're having a hard time even giving yourself permission to allow yourself to hope for that, because you want that. Like, you want swords beaten into plowshares, but it's scary to do so. It's scary to, to believe that that's even possible. But I think this is what we see, you know, like our swords make us feel safe. But our swords are also the reason that we get stuck in these cycles of violence, an eye for an eye. Which granted is even in the Old Testament. Like if you want the Bible verses that justify violence, it's there. I'll show you where they are. 
I don't think that that's the vision of the kingdom that we're called to. But we, we cling to our, our swords or our AK-47s or our intercontinental ballistic missiles or our nuclear weapons or whatever, our nasty words, our social media attacks, whatever. Like We cling to these things because they make us feel safe in a violent world. But we have to recognize, like, oh, I'm actually contributing to the problem when that's my solution for violence. This is another image. This is uh, by a, a German artist, Otto Pankok. Um, he made this in 1950, and it's Christ uh, breaking this gun over his knee. You can imagine in 1950 in Germany, uh, they're having a rude awakening of what happens when humanity tries to run the world. And so they're kind of, they're needed, there was this, this vacuum of prophetic vision for Christians in Germany, especially because so many of them had been ashamed because they became complicit to the empire. Like many um, like Catholic and Protestant uh, leaders alike kind of bowed to Hitler and Nazi Germany and at least turned a blind eye to what it was that they were doing um, within their own country and then throughout Europe. Um, but there was such a small, unfortunately, resistance because Christians in Germany did not have the prophetic imagination to see what it was that Hitler was actually doing. So they began to reimagine things uh, in the 1950s, and then uh, the, the Christian peace movement actually takes up this image from Otto uh, as their symbol in the 1980s. And you say to me, well, this, gosh, Ryan, this vision of peace, it's like, it's like it passes all understanding. And I go, yeah, it kind of does. Like, peace isn't a thing that you need to get. It's not something that you need to understand. It's something that you have to allow these visions to wash over you time and again so that you are purged of your violent tendencies. And I think that then when, it's, when we recognize, oh, it's not, it's peace isn't something I enact. It's something that is washed over me and then passes through me. It's a really important counteraction to the human tendency for us to try to fix things on our own when we think that it's our job to fix the world because peace has already been won for us. The world just doesn't know it yet. And this is a very important kingdom shift for us because I think sometimes even as well-meaning Christians, we think, oh, I have to go out and I have to like, fix the world or I have to change the world or I have to do this thing, I have to create this thing. But I think the truly radical message of Christ is no, peace was already won for us on the cross. Like that was God making peace with all of creation, doing away with sin and death. What is sin? Sin is violence against God and it's violence against creation, ourselves included in that. All of that being put to death and a new world bursting forth in the old one. So I think as Christians, it's recognizing we are not reasonable people. We're not supposed to be reasonable people. We are people who have been so captured by a vision of beauty and truth and goodness that it becomes impossible for us to live out any other way. Like we're peaceable people because we can't imagine being anything other than that. And I think that's the radical nature of the kingdom. And so I would put peaceableness as the center of a Christian ethic. Like the way we make decisions, we make it out of a sense of peace, togetherness with God, 
togetherness with one another, togetherness with creation itself. Because you and I, we are the first fruits of this new world that's bursting forth in the midst of the old one. This is what we see time and again through the New Testament vision of the kingdom. Like Christ is the first fruits and the resurrection, the new world that comes with his resurrection. And then you and I, as we're captured into that vision, we become part of that new world. And our stance is a stance against the old world, against the old ways of violence and eye for an eye. And as we are washed of our sin, as we are purged of our small empirical visions of how to control the world, that we participate more in the kingdom, we reveal it through our actions, and those actions are called peace. Is this not what Jesus was showing us in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because as Christians, we don't have enemies As Christians, we don't posit ourselves against other people. Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of darkness. And that that kingdom manifesto that we started with at the beginning of the year in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the way in which we live out this new radical kingdom of peace. So in Advent, the gift of peace is given to you, but it may also be given through you. And I think it's actually both and. Because I think what happens to us so so often in the Christian household is that we only have this expectation to receive, like that's what we're doing, right? So we, we, we measure a Sunday gathering, we measure worship by what did I get out of this? We measure our Bible reading by what did, I, what did I get out of it? Like, did I get something? Did God give me something in this? And we only measure the, the kingdom reality, the Christian life and journey through what we receive. But if you imagine, it's almost like there's a pool that fills up with water, and that water just sits there. It fills to the brim. It's got nowhere else to go. And then it just sits there. And what happens to that water over time if it's not stirred, if it's not moved? It becomes stagnant. It becomes stale. It starts to grow things. And so often that's what happens to us in our journey uh, with Christ is we're only concerned about what we receive. And we get filled up to a certain degree, our vessel as small as it may be, with this vision of peace or love or hope or joy, these things that were promised in Advent. But then it doesn't go anywhere. And it just gets stuck because everything's still about us. But imagine if that same vessel, that same pool had some sort of a spigot on it or had a a way for it to kind of, the the water to flow through it, that it's constantly being replenished, but it's also constantly putting something back out into the world. And I think that that's what you and I need in order to capture this radical vision of peace in ever greater capacity is to begin to participate in the peace of Christ to offer that through us in the world. And even right now, perhaps you're thinking of who are your enemies? Where are the relationships in your life where there's a sense of brokenness, where you've used uh, violence, uh, you know, uh, mischievous words or actions or whatever it is against somebody because they've wronged you, where you've participated in an eye for an eye. And perhaps the invitation from the Lord in this season is for you to actually participate in peace, to offer peace to someone else. 
I heard this wonderful anecdote this week. Uh, I think it was a podcast that Daniel actually sent me. And it was uh, um, a theologian was talking to a young student who would consider himself a nihilist. And nihilism is basically like, I don't believe in everything. Everything's garbage, which nobody actually believes, but some people think that they do. But this person's like struggling with like just constant depression and this feeling of meaninglessness. And that was the crisis at the core of their story. Like everything's meaningless. Like there's no point to life. There's no point to living. And this theologian challenged them and said, here's what I want you to do. Every single person you encounter this week, I want you to pretend that that person is Christ. Like that's Jesus, okay? This is a very, we find this throughout our tradition, like Mother Teresa talked about this, like Augustine, like so many people talked about this idea, like treat people as if they're Christ and see if this crisis of meaning at the core of your life changes. So this young man goes home, he walks in the door, and his mom's doing the dishes. And he pauses and he's like, well, if that was Christ doing the dishes, what would I do? And so he slipped in and he began to actually help her to do the dishes. And then his father came home. His father sat down, and normally there's no interaction. You know, one of those kinds of families. He said, well, what if, if that was Jesus just sitting there? I probably want to go and talk to him and ask him and be curious and ask him about his day. And so he began to interact with his dad. And like every interact, little, just these little daily interactions that he had every day, when he began to treat people as if they were Christ, he found that it, not only did it give him a sense of meaning, but it made him believe in the reality of Christ. Because the reality of Christ is something that we participate in. And I think that gets us to a vision of peace that approaches practicality. It's not quite there. I'm not giving you a program. But I'm giving you a vision. What if the person sitting next to you was Christ incarnate? Like, what if when you walk out of here and you see the people that are walking, like, working the little coffee shop there, you see all these little kids coming into the science center, or you go to lunch at wherever, um, or you talk to your mom on the phone later, or you interact with that coworker tomorrow morning, what if you treated them as if they were Christ? Like, would you be such a violent person? And I think that could radically shift us. Where might Jesus be inviting you to walk in peace in this Christmas season? Because peace is not simply our destination. Peace is the way in which we walk the journey itself. So I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to spend some time in intercessory prayer before we step back into worship to, to kind of continue to build and strengthen that sense of peace that we have with God himself. And one of the things that I love about these kinds of liturgical prayers is, number one, it's, it's asking us to pray for things that we maybe normally wouldn't pray for in our natural, right? It's really nice to pray prayers, I think, from the inside out. Like, what's on my heart? What am I wrestling over? I'm going to pray that. But I really like prayers also that are from the outside in to go, wait a minute, I can pray for the government? Like, yeah, you, and you should. Um, but one of the things that I love, like, you know, coming from a liturgical tradition, I know many of you have, when you begin to listen to these kinds of prayers, you recognize every prayer is a prayer for peace. Like, it's all about unity with God. It's all about unity within the human family, with creation itself, and it's all about unity within ourselves. So when we're praying these words, even though we might not specifically use the word peace, that's what we're praying for. So I want us to be uh, good uh, liturgians today, and we're going to use a liturgical prayer, but I also want us to be good Pentecostals, and I want us to pray out loud. Um, 
not that God can't hear you, it's because you need to hear you. And you need to hear everybody around you pray. And I think that something shifts in us when we put those prayers out into the ether on behalf of one another. So I'm going to give you uh, one kind of prompt, and then I'm going to leave space for you to pray out loud. And then I kind of, I'm going to call you back by saying, Lord, in your mercy. And then you respond with, hear our prayer. And then we go on to the next one. Okay? So let us pray for the church and for the world. Grant, Almighty God, that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Let's pray for any churches that you might be connected with. Lord, in your mercy, guide the people of this land and of all the nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. We especially pray for our President Joe, we pray for our Vice President Kamala, we pray for our Congress, we pray for our courts, we pray for our Governor Ron, we pray for our County Mayor Jerry, we pray for our City Mayor Buddy that all who are in positions of power may know what you mean when you say peace. So let us pray for our nation and for all the nations. Lord, in your mercy. Give, give us all a reverence for the earth as your own creation, that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. Let us pray for our peace uh, with the created order itself. just a little bit more local. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Let us pray for our friends, our family, our co-workers, the people that we're connected to.
And now we pray for uh, suffering. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. Let's pray for all those who might be suffering. Lord, in your mercy, we commend to your mercy all who have died, that your will for them may be fulfilled. And we pray that we may share with all your saints in your eternal kingdom, as we just remain in silence uh, to honor those who have already gone home. Lord, in your mercy. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's worship.
Laura, give me my lion back real quick. We just want to bask in the glory. Thank you. So maybe he resonates with you this year because you feel, you feel like that half-balding uh, toddler-abused lion uh, where you're not so sure this whole vision of peace is going to work out. That's okay. I'm giving you permission to be unreasonable, to be impractical, to not feel the need to be you know, utilitarian in all the decisions that you make. But maybe this Advent season is just about you kind of breaking out of those unimaginative empirical cycles and imagining, well, maybe there's actually something bigger and better and more transcendent, and maybe it's the prophets that can grant me that vision so that the knowledge of the Lord uh, would cover us like the waters cover the sea. That's my challenge to you, my very practical challenge, practical, is I want to challenge you when you walk out this door, can you see everybody as the face of Christ? And maybe there's one person in particular this week, you know that there's some violence, you know that there's, a, there's, there's animosity or there's a sense of coldness or whatever it might be, and you need to pivot, you need to get the two of you out of that cycle and begin to practice peace and maybe in doing so to recognize that Christ has become present in and amongst you in that. That's my challenge to you. So a couple practical notes. You know, this is the first Sunday of December. 
Um, so we're kind of wrapping up the year, and we're going to be talking a lot about finances at the beginning of the year. Uh, but I want to make you aware of a couple numbers. Uh, number one, really exciting thing. You heard about the matching grant that we've been doing where um, we would get a grant of up to $1,000 for everybody who signs up for renew, uh, recurring giving. Okay, So we're, not only we, we made that, but we have uh, committed like $2,000 a month from 11 of you. 11 of you signed up for that recurring giving, which is awesome. So we're going to get that grant. So that's amazing. Um, where we're at right now, one month left in the year, is that we're $43,000 short of our budget. Some of you, uh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, it's, it's not kind of totally out there for us to be short in December, like there's been years where we've made it up and we've actually exceeded it. So I wanna challenge you um, this week, this month, we wanna finish strong so that we can enter into next year strong because that's, you know, if we're looking at just what we spent and what we've brought in, we're, we, we had a sh shortcoming of about $23,000. Um, I think we can make that up. I think that's doable. So I wanna challenge you, like sit down, you know, Prayerfully consider, like, where, where have you been this year in terms of giving? Like, if you consider this home, if this thing has fed you in any way, shape, or form, if you want to bless uh, what we're doing and the different ministries that we have running here, like, where are you at when it comes to the end of the year um, in, in practicing generosity? And how do you want to finish the year strong so begin next year strong? So those are uh, kind of two financial updates. We'll have a few more things for you go, uh, throughout the week as we go. Um, again, giving, text to give, that's what I do. It's super simple. Um, you can set up recurring giving at citybeautiful.ch give, or there's a box there if you're old school and you love writing checks or giving us wampum. We'll find somebody. Yeah, you know, we'll find somebody to convert it. Uh, so if you just put your hands out in front of you, and I love, you know, we, I, I kind of do this benediction every week, but this week it feels really, really, really good because what it does, it says, oh, you're not walking out into... A peaceful world. You're walking out there with the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. So may the peace of Christ go with you. Wherever he may send you, may he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again through our doors. Amen. See you all next week. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.